I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Matthew. I'm taking a break this week and putting an old episode down the feed. It's one of my favorites, and despite being the third episode, it was actually the very first interview I recorded for Scaffold back in November of 2017. It's with the psychotherapist and fat activist Charlotte Cooper, and we cover a lot of ground, including her dance and performance work, her class identity and its impact on her relationship to academia, and most importantly, her incredible research projects around fat and fat feminism. Charlotte refers to herself as a cultural worker, but to me, she's one of the most exciting and inspiring artists working today. If you haven't heard this one yet, I highly recommend it, and even if you have, I thought you might like to listen again. So here it is, episode three with Charlotte Cooper. I hope you enjoy it. I think that I'm really drawn to what you do because you seem to be kind of hovering between things. You're once an academic, and then you have your doctorate degree, um, you're a psychoanalyst, and you're a dancer, and uh, many other things as well. But you know, it's amazing to hear you say those things because in so many ways I don't feel that I can claim those, those titles. Psychotherapist more than psychoanalyst, there is a difference between those two things, mm. as far as I'm concerned. But um, I feel like class makes me feel that those things will never be within my reach, and that what I do always has to be maybe not quite good enough or not quite. And in some ways that is heartbreaking, but in other ways it does allow me to be really autonomous in the stuff that I make and to, um, to sort of exist in these strange in-between spaces too. Because mm. I've, I've noticed that you've written about your experience in academia and how, I'm not sure where I read this, but you felt like in some ways you, you could never belong or you never belonged in the first place. Um, so why, what made you enter it and what made you leave? What made me enter it was that uh, uh, I was working, well, a bit of backstory is I spent most of my 20s on welfare uh, and, um, and then I worked in the porn industry and then miraculously I managed to get on a, a course for people who were signing on, on the dole, uh, to learn how to make websites and to learn about um, digital publishing. And so from that I started working um, in tech uh, and I started making money, which was the first thing that ever, the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me. And, um, and that was okay for a while, but I, you know, I don't really love it. I mean, it's a useful skill and the skills that I still use, although they're quite dated now, but I didn't love it. And so by the time, let's see, the doctorate came around, I've been working on the intranet of an oil multinational part-time for five years and, uh, and it was just going nowhere and I hated the company uh, and, and, and I just had sort of no interest in that and I just had trained to be a therapist and that was ending and I went to a conference, a fat conference in Cambridge and someone asked me if I was Charlotte Cooper who had written Fat and Proud and I was like oh yeah that's me and was amazed that somebody would recognise me, recognise my work. So this is a lot of backstory, but the no, gist is that I was, I was um, that people had read my work, which really surprised me. Work that I produced in the nineties, and around two thousand and seven, somebody told me that uh, there was money going for a, a doctorate around fat in um, at Limerick, and was I interested? I was like, fuck yeah, of course I'm totally interested in that. So I applied for it and I got it. And the beginning was very strange because. I was really naive, I mean, though I'd been in academia on and off over the years, I was really naive about what neoliberal academia was. And it's a bit different to Ireland to here and certainly different to in the US uh, and in other kind of Western countries, but I, I, got, a, I got a glimpse of it and I realised, yeah, it's, it's not the place for me. I felt that I was being trained to be a, 
a teacher of methodology, which I, you know, I'm interested in methodology, but not that interested in it. And, um, and I felt that I would have to live elsewhere or move. And I felt that I would always, ha always have to be on sort of a minimum wage type job. I thought I would never get tenure or equivalent of tenure. And by that point I was, you know, 40, yeah, in my early 40s. And I thought this is too late to be starting out in this kind of a career. And I always felt that I never really spoke the language. Uh, even though I know the language, I can talk about post-structuralism if you want to, but I just felt that it really wasn't the place for me. And my actual love was the therapy that I'd... I mean, it happened so quickly, I finished my therapy training and literally within a week was at Limerick and starting on the PhD. So, um, in a way, the, the doctorate has been amazing and life-changing, but it was a bit of... Um, an interval, I guess, in the stuff that I really cared about, which was the therapy. or In terms of how to make, make my living or how to do work that I think is useful in the world that really touches people, therapy beats uh, academia by mm. a million miles. You have this term para-academic mm -hmm. to describe your kind of involvement in intellectual life. Um, and it's kind of bringing me, I guess, towards the moment where I first encountered your work, which was at the Welcome Collection last year. Mm. You gave a lecture, a public lecture, um, on your fat activism, and you showed uh, videos of past organizing, political organizing you'd done, mm. and performance work. And you handed out zines, and then there was an intermission, and the audience all went upstairs to the, quote, uh, obesity um, mm -hmm. exhibit. Mm. And you gave a performance. Mm. You danced yes. with your friend, uh, my girlfriend, Kay Hyatt. Kay Hyatt. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I was just completely blown away. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing, Matthew. Thank you. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever seen anyone do all of that all at once. I'm a bit of a show, <laughs> a showgirl. <laughs> uh -huh. but, but more than that, I think it's, it's that uh, this is a different way. I think what I saw was like a much fuller spectrum of expression being deployed almost simultaneously. Mm. And I wanted to ask you a bit about that and how you arrived at a place in your professional life where you found you could do all of those things at once. Well, the welcome was a very, was a very special night, actually. And they'd approached me uh, earlier. I knew that they were going to do this thing. Um, and they knew about the book and they liked the book and they wanted me to do something about the book. But I also thought, what an opportunity to do something quite spectacular in this space. And I have a very complex relationship to the welcome, primarily because of their obesity exhibit, which I think is absolutely appalling, really a disgusting, uh, hate-filled space. And uh, so it was a balance between being really flattered and excited about being uh, having a, a platform to talk about stuff that I care about, but also wanting to subvert it and not to... Um, sort of bracket out my critique of the place too. Mm -hmm. And it was really difficult, it was extremely anxiety provoking trying to bring the critique in a way that would be heard and supported. And for a while I thought they would say, actually we don't want you to talk after all, you can't say these things about our place, we need to you know, do something different. So Just for people who might not be aware of, mm. first of all, what the welcome is, okay. and then secondly, what this obesity ex exhibit is. Right, okay, so uh, the welcome collection, I think is probably, the most or one of certainly one of the foremost uh, medical museums and uh, archives and collections of medical stuff uh, in the world and it's extremely hallowed and uh, august institution it's got an enormous uh, office it's also um, a charitable ex uh, sort of institution as well so they fund lots of things and the money came through I guess um, 18th century uh, entrepreneurialism and philanthropy, which of course in the West is always connected with colonialism uh, and slavery too. So it's kind of like a murky uh, organisation as far as I can see, although they're very careful and, and, and sensitive around the, the organisation's past. And it's all kind of separated out. And also it's connected to um, Glaxo uh, Smithkline Welcome as well. So the, it's a pharmaceutical multinational too. Although the Welcome Collection, I mean, obviously has a link to it, but they're kind of a bit cagey and mysterious about what that link is. But that's mm. basically, I think, where the money comes from. So it's mm. a massive institution. And, uh, and the Obesity Gallery, so they have a, a permanent display 
uh, around uh, medicine, I can't remember what the name of it is, and they have um, certain um, exhibits there, and one of the central exhibits is called Obesity. And, and, the, and the central part of, uh, of the display is a sculpture, which is basically a, like a diseased blob on legs. And um, yeah, that's the kind of central thing. But they all have, also have stuff there, like lots of kind of diet technology, uh, and they have um, medics, and uh, various kind of oral histories and diet books and it's a bit like oh isn't weight loss fascinating you know isn't the technology of weight loss fascinating isn't isn't science amazing rather than any kind of critique about what the impact of these technologies are on people like me yeah. um, which are devastating actually those those technologies so it's a it's a mixture it's a kind of well at the time and maybe more s still now a modish mixture of art and science so they have the sculpture and they have artworks and they also have um these kind of examples of technologies like um, uh, gastric bands and you know portion size things that's yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So you decided uh, unsolicited in a way and on your own terms that this was uh, going to be in addition to what they'd asked you to contribute to the um, to the event. That yeah day. yeah they wanted a um, they wanted a talk and I thought yeah I can do a good talk I'm happy about doing a talk but this is a really great opportunity to be in the space and to you, well, for Kay and I to use our bodies as quite disruptive presences in the in the space. So um, yeah, so it was an opportunity to um, to to do something a bit unusual when in a space that is very much about formality. Uh -huh. mm. So that I guess then the next question is: this is a kind of opportunism, mm. and a way that you've described it is uh, under this title of cultural work. What is a cultural worker? When did you discover this term and how does it define the work you do? I discovered the term through a, a DIY artist called Mark Pawson who, um, who used it in the 90s. That's when I first came across it. But more recently I've come across it through the work of uh, Elana Dykewoman, who I adore, who is a, a long-standing uh, lesbian feminist activist, Jewish uh, activist um, based in the Bay Area and what I understand of this term is I think it comes out of co uh, a Spanish communism but not being a Spanish speaker I'm not sure about that uh, perhaps a term that comes from the 20s but again I'm not sure it's a bit vague um, but I understand the term to be about work that has political intent that has a transformative quality about it and for me it's a way of talking about the various things I do because I use different tools to express myself without saying, yeah, you know, Matthew, I'm a writer, or, you know, I'm an, I'm an artist. It's a way of kind of de-pretentiousifying uh, those terms, which I, I mean, as I said before, my class background makes those, those labels uh, quite uneasy for me to claim for myself. So cultural worker, I mean, it is work, it's work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm a working class person <laughs> doing work. So uh, I think it's sort of to do with that, but it's also about culture too, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm just thinking now, like I should try and be a little more linear. Okay. About, <laughs> about uh, your professional trajectory. Oh, okay. Um, maybe the best place to start uh, it's like way back in childhood, because you've, oh, yeah. you've written a bit about that. Yeah. Um, so I guess starting with, there was this article you wrote in The Guardian about uh, you discovering that your father was a spy for yeah. MI5. Yeah, MI6. MI6. Yeah, the secret one. The secret yeah. one. And uh, like how formative a moment that was for you. Yeah. Um, could we actually just start there? Yeah, okay. So dad was a spy for MI6. <laughs> and uh, I found, well, I kind of had hunches about it because weird things were happening throughout my childhood. But um, I found uh, some false passports in his uh, in his sock drawer when I was going through a phase of dressing up in his clothes when he left the house. Now there's a story. Um, yeah, and he always denied it. Uh, and then later he denied it less. Uh, but yeah, it was this kind of a weird way of growing up. And so he moved around a lot as a child. Uh, my brothers were farmed off to boarding school, which was paid or, paid for by MI6. And I was sent to boarding school for a year, uh, which just complicates my relationship to class enormously. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I don't really know what else to say. I mean, it was a disaster, really. It was a disaster mm. that he worked for them. You, you wrote about uh, memories of you and him sitting at the kitchen table. He brought home a radio. <laughs> he brought and home... you were able to eavesdrop on people's conversations. On mobile phones, mm -hmm. yeah. So this would have been around 
about 85, 86-ish, yeah. So when people started to have those big brick mobile phones, mm-hmm. well, yeah, we, we could listen to them. And I remember him saying, you know, you mustn't tell anybody this. But of course, you know, it's plain as day to anybody now that phones are surveillance devices. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is something I learned at a very young age. There's just something incredibly tender about that image, though, in a way. That was a tender time, but uh-huh. mostly with Dad it was not very tender either. There was a lot of neglect in my, in my childhood. Mostly it was just... It was just weird, and there were strange things like uh, we lived in Hereford for a while, and, and the house next door was empty, and there was a, a Russian guy, you know, in 1978, 79. Uh, you would not really have met many Russian people in Hereford, and there was a Russian guy being, quote, debriefed yeah. uh, next door. So I don't really know what that means. I don't know if they were torturing him. He s- seemed okay, huh. but um, I guess they were interrogating him. In the same story, I think you wrote about uh, how your older brothers were sent away to boarding school, mm. and this was part of the, I guess, the social expectations that uh, your dad's uh, job kind of set up for him. This was a proper kind of middle class thing to do. Uh, yes. But in a way, uh, in, in a very clear way, that was a very damaging experience. Yeah, so mum and dad um, really came from nothing. But they were of a generation, they were of the generation that benefited from the welfare state in the UK after the war. And they also had um, vocational training. So dad learnt about electronics and radar, which is how he got into the spy business. And mum mum was trained to be a nurse. And so they had this, a lot of, um, one of the key values in their lives was about being respectable, becoming respectable. And that, I think, MI6 certainly represents, represented that, an opportunity to become respectable, proper people. And, um, well, I feel very sad about that. It's funny when I was talking about doing my PhD, one of the things that I realised on embarking upon it was that I was using education to become respectable. And actually, I didn't care about respectability, ultimately. And that was, um, I think that was part of a sort of a freeing moment that enabled me to to not think academia was the place for me. I didn't. I really don't care about respectability, Matthew. It's really not my bag at all. But it's something that I've certainly been very much socialised into valuing that. Mm. And I think mum and dad's engagement with this deeply unethical business of spying for the state and involving your family in that to really disastrous, catastrophic ends. Um, you know, I, I really wish that hadn't happened. I think it was, um, yeah, a terrible mistake that they pursued that. You're, you said your mom and your aunt were both nurses fulfilling, I'm just reading from, sorry, this is an article you wrote in uh, a working class woman's... Oh my God, yes, poor lass. Pa- poor lass. Poor lass, poor lass, yes. lass yeah. So God, you're is, so thorough, my God. <laughs> this is from poor lass. So uh, your mother and aunt were both nurses fulfilling class and gender roles that were very limited when they were growing up. And this is you uh, writing now, uh, quote, I see my work as an extension of those expectations. It is about caring for people, but I also feel like a class infiltrator, putting myself where people like me aren't supposed to be. Yeah, well, you know, the therapy business is extremely middle class, mm-hmm. and um, and in fact, there's 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 a kind of unspoken or kind of assumed divide between counselling and psychotherapy, and uh, I call myself a psychotherapist because I've got a doctorate, uh, and also, uh, well, why not? But counselling is seen as the more kind of uh, the thing that less trained people would do, uh, the stuff that happens in community more perhaps, but really it's all bogus and it's all to do with class and gender and stuff. Um, so yeah, I do feel like I've gone further than my mum and, and my aunt have been able to go, but I guess, um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's sort of painful in a way to to, to have... I wish I could bring them with me. Mm. I mean, I can't bring my mum with me because she's dead. And my aunt, you know, she's retired and she's in her 70s now. It's not going to happen. But I wish, I wish I could have brought them with me. There's always a bittersweet feeling about that. People usually talk about death at the end of interviews. <laughs> but I almost want to go there now because I know your mum passed away when yeah. she was 48. Yeah. You're 48 now. Yeah, no, 49. You're 49. Yeah, I survived her. I survived her. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not dead yet. Uh-huh. Um, what, it must have been such a strange time, though. This must have been undermined quite a lot. 
I think about her every day and I think about death every day. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but my brother died a year after my mum. Yeah. So when I was 18, mum died. And then when I was 19, Paul died, my oldest brother. So all of a sudden, you know, half my family were no longer there. And, um, well, it was absolutely, I can't put it into words, you know, beyond devastating, completely and absolutely life-forming. And, um, yeah, I think about death all the time, all the time. And sometimes it's a morbid uh, f feeling or, or thoughts, um, but mostly I feel like, thank God I'm alive. I've got to make the most of this. And maybe it's funny talking about the welcome and all the stuff that was part of that. That's in a way how I approach my life. It's like, try and do stuff while you're alive. There's a real urgency. There is urgency. Although, I must say, it, I'm making time to rest and to and to and to think and to be and to stare at the walls a lot more as I get older. The urgency, I think, is is tapering a little bit, but it, I still feel there's so much mm -hmm. that I want to do. And I also feel like I could die at any moment. You know, there's a kind of terror that it will get me. It will mm. get me sooner than I want it to. It seems like there was so much that culminated in the publishing of Fat Activism last year. Um, and the book that preceded that, which I haven't actually been able to get a hold of, is uh, Fat and Proud. Yeah. That was published in 98. Yeah. What, how did that come about? That came about because I uh, did a master's degree. Uh, and um, so I had a document at the end of that, which was a dissertation. And I knew somebody who worked for a publisher and they said they were thinking about publishing a fat book, a fat feminist book. So I said, oh, maybe they would want to publish a version of this. Mm. And they did. And that was a very fraught relationship because at the time I was starting to understand myself as a queer and what that meant. And this was um, a radical uh, lesbian feminist press that had a lot of difficulties with the concept of queer who saw it as too male identified. So they called me bisexual in the book and they enforced that even though I don't identify as bisexual. So there are all these kind of nibby little points of conflict, ideological conflict in working with them. And ones that I really regret as well. So there were um, passages in the book about trans people which they refused to publish. And there were um, passages about Fat Girl, which we'll talk about San Francisco in a bit, uh, which they refused to publish because it quote promoted pornography. And so, I mean, I was in my late 20s. I'd never published a book before. It was really, really hard work trying to get the book out in the world. And it's certainly a compromised piece, but um, there it is. I decided that it was better the book was out than not out. And that, how did that experience differ from publishing Fat Activism oh, in 2016? Oh, worlds apart. So, so um, uh, DM Withers is the, is the owner of Hammer On, and it is a friend that I've known for a while. And this is a um, a really sort of DIY. I mean, Women's Press was a small publisher, but but um, Hammer On is a tiny um, micro press. And um, you know, we worked out a contract together. Um, and I feel like I fully own I fully own the work, and that um, yeah, I'm really really proud of it. Actually, I think it's a beautiful book. I'm really glad that I did it. Um, and I guess it's more consistent in my own values of um, you know we share many politics. Um, and my own sort of values around DIY and, and autonomy. Mm. So, yeah, a very different experience. Because you've also written about how activism uh, shifts and changes and adapts to the culture it's taking place within. Mm. And I mean, if you just think about 1998 versus 2016, activism of all kinds looks so much different back then than it does now. Yes, that's right. I mean, at that point, I mean, I was on the internet at that point um, but most people weren't and god I mean politics have changed enormously around well feminist politics certainly a lot of your work is so medium specific mm. that uh, certain messages are more appropriate for a kind of formal academic lecture and others are, can only be expressed through gesture or a dance. horrible dance <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, another striking moment, just going back to that uh, performance and lecture you gave, was when someone asked you about health 
and you have a dance now yes. to respond to that question because yes. you get asked it so often. All the time, yeah. So I do have a dance for that and, and that is probably going to turn into a bigger project as well. So the dance is called But Is It Healthy? Mm -hmm. uh, which is the question I get asked constantly and it's a very complicated question but seemingly innocent. And, uh, and so the dance has various kind of movements about my reactions to that question. But I'm thinking about turning it into something that is danced in specific places, as we did in The Welcome, about maybe that's a video project, about maybe that's a dance other people can do, maybe that is an instructional dance, uh, maybe is something that people can, can use when they feel that they need some response or gesture or something. I don't know, it could go in any directions, but mostly I'm thinking at the moment it might be a dance that is danced at various locations, perhaps something that is turned into a, a short film or something, but I don't know. It's in its early stages. It's, it's kind of two-thirds down the to-do list. Mm. Mm. Let's talk a little more about dance. Mm. Um, so I guess a recent project you've embarked on is with a collective called Project O. Yes. And it's called Swagger. Yeah. Tell me about Swagger. Yeah. So. Um, I've, uh, I've loved dance for uh, most of my life, but again, didn't feel that it was something that was accessible to me. Uh, not just because of class stuff, but because of being fat, and now latterly because I'm old, or older. Uh, and But I've also danced most of my life in nightclubs, and here in my front room, and in various kind of informal places. Uh, and I guess more recently I was thinking I would like to dance on a stage or to find out more about this mysterious world of dance that I felt so excluded from and wonder if I am that excluded really. And through various um, twists and turns of fate, uh, Kay and I met uh, Alexandrina Hemsley and Jamila Johnson-Small who work together as Project O and also work on other things as well separately. And they were, we went to see a performance that they did called O in 2013, I thought it was absolutely amazing. And I wrote a blog post about it, uh, which I sent them a link to it, and they both really loved it. And they said that they wanted to extend the work, but they wanted to work with other people whose bodies were different to theirs. And while Kay and I could not be more different to Jamila and Alex, who are 20 years younger than us, who are limber and lithe, who are women of colour, um, whose life experiences are very different to ours. So. Um, they invited us to dance and so it was just like a dream come true really. I remember um, getting the email and you know punching the air and just being absolutely delighted that this was going to happen and so over the course of a couple of years I guess we, we did a lot of um, it's mostly improvising, we did a lot of uh, improvising and refining and doing little performances and then building that into a, a bigger show and I guess the, the, the sort of the final version of that we did a run at the Yard Theatre in Hackney in 2015 and then last year we did maybe one performance and there may be other performances of it too but there's also a, a film, for a study, a, a, a video study of it by Katarzyna Perlak uh, which has also been screened in various places too and we'll have another outing. So that's been the main, um, yeah, the main part of Swagger. And what it's about, well, I don't know, um, but it's, uh, I guess, sort of antisocial queer fatness on a stage, and there's some singing in it, and mostly dancing, and some solos and duets. Oh, and uh, when we've played, when we've performed it live, uh, mostly we, we perform with a band called Trash Kit, who um, a favourite band of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, so the live musicians on stage that we dance to. I'm wondering, like, what happens when this kind of work becomes no longer antisocial? I can't imagine it not being antisocial because you know, <laughs> have you been to a dance class lately? I mean, <laughs> these are like the nicest, most polite. Uh, sweet young people you can imagine eager mm. and it's like mm. here come Kay and I screaming and farting on stage and uh -huh. you know and just being generally disgusting so I mean what does it feel like for an audience to applaud that though what does it feel like I know what it feels like when I see something eye-popping on stage that I think is so unallowed I and mean, I'm certainly thinking about performances by David Hoyle 
uh, and who else have I seen recently? Or well, Scotty has done some stuff, which is just I don't know amazing. Brief Perform way. queer performance uh, artists, uh, legendary actually. Okay. Yeah. Um, and how I feel is just excited and allowed to be, and you know things feeling, other possibilities being being presented that maybe dance doesn't have to be uh, someone doing ballet or it doesn't have to be strictly ballroom or it doesn't have to be anything like that. And maybe dance can be something really really weird and far out that kind of you don't really know where to put it in your brain. That's, uh -huh. that's, that's what I like in dance when I see it. You've talked about doing dance research recently. Yeah. What does that entail? Yeah, so um, uh, I first kind of encountered it through uh, Hamish McPherson and through stuff that was going on at Roehampton University. And, and, what, and, Kay, and what Kay and I have been doing is spending regular periods um, in the studio we go to the Chisholm Hale Studios in Hackney because it's really cheap there. You can rent a studio for like nine pounds an hour. It's unbelievable. It's I mean, it didn't occur to me that you could do this, <laughs> but you can. So we go for like three hour stretches every now and again. And we just, at the moment, we're, we're basically exploring what it is to be fat, to be fat in a space. And it's, I know it sounds so basic, but it really is basic. It's about building relationships with our bodies and just sort of seeing what comes up. And we have been using the space as a kind of experimental space to think about, to try things out that we haven't been able to do elsewhere. So we had a, uh, a session where we tried leaping. <laughs> I mean, it's funny as well as kind of profound. And more recently, we've been experimenting with getting really, really out of breath and what that feels like. So kind of inhabiting a stereotype of what it is to be fat, I guess and thinking about what that feels like. So the research part is about moving and about exploring what that movement is and about writing about it and thinking about it and discussing it. And again, that will probably turn into something else, perhaps a publication, perhaps a video. I, I mean, I don't know what a performance, it could be anything, um, but at the moment we're doing this kind of exploring and, and sort of research part of that project. That is so cool. It's like, <laughs> it's um, to me, it's so much about embodiment. Yes. And about um, kind of firsthand, visceral, tactile experience, which is incredibly abstract. Yes. But then when you put this label research on it, there's a certain element of empiricism, I guess. And it's, yes. It's both uh, Im impossibly, uh, it's, it's both ineffable and it's also very rigorous. Yes. It, I mean, I, all I can say is it's weird. It's a weird experience. And, you know, my, my training in research is very much about, um, well, em empirical rigour. And this is rigorous, but in a different way. And a lot of work around fat, especially fat studies, which is becoming appropriated by thin academics who want to rename it critical weight studies and, and want to take the politics out of it, which really burns me. A lot of it is so disembodied, and this is a different way of thinking about fat, um, which is totally about being present with our with our own fat bodies and and being again being in a place where we're not supposed to be a dance studio. You know, we never see any other fat people when we go there. It's like world of the thin, uh, which I don't resent. You know, they're friendly and nice, but really, there's nobody like us in a space like that. And when I think about fat dance, it is tends to be quite assimilationist it's about trying to you know do ballet or be as fit as a thin person or whatever and this is not that this is about who are we what you know we've, we're so alienated from our bodies what is it like to really look at our bodies and to experience and inhabit them I want to talk a little more about research mm. and your experience researching uh, fat feminism mm. so when did you first discover that there's this um, there's this figure that comes up again and again in your writing, um, whose name is Judy Freespirit. Mm. How did you encounter her work for the first time and what led you to, to kind of pursue her? Yeah, so because of my age, I straddle lots of different feminisms. I'm not a, well, I guess my values are more third wave and I'm very tentative to talk about waves, but my age means I also have had very formative encounters with earlier feminisms, with radical lesbian feminism, and with fem feminisms that didn't necessarily want me being part of them because I don't 
I'm well, am I lesbian? I don't think so. I'm I'm queer. And that's problematic in, in those kinds of spaces. And so I guess it, it must have been around 85 or something. 80, I seem to be mentioning like 1985 quite a lot today. It seems to have been a very <laughs> formative time. But around that period, I started reading about fat and not the fat that had been written about by um, feminists who were interested in eating disorders. It was a different kind of take on things. And so I got this book called Shadow on a Tightrope, and Judy had a, a really fantastic essay in there that stuck with me, which was a, just about a day in her life, really simple, and just a few pages long. And so that's when I first heard of her. Um, you can get copies of Shadow on a Tightrope for like 0.01p on Amazon. If you, I mean, these books are so unfashionable, nobody is interested in them. Huh. But for me, they're a goldmine. Um, and so it wasn't just Judy, it was that whole kind of world. I couldn't imagine that the, Elana Dightwoman as well wrote an essay uh, called Travelling Fat, which might be in Shadow on a Tightrope, but it was in a, another book called Out the Other Side as well. And it just astonished me that there was a world uh, where there was an infrastructure of coffee shops and women's centres and small businesses that could support uh, fat, uh, radical lesbian feminism um, community and approach. Uh, and so that really grabbed me at a time when I was so far away from that. You know, I was doing an undergraduate degree in Aberystwyth. You know, it's nothing, nothing, there was nothing going on in, this, in the same sort of realm there. But it seemed to me again that the, the, these other worlds were possible and they were happening elsewhere and that really intrigued me. And so when it came to my PhD, I'd, I wanted to sort of trace, I wanted to think about what fat activism was, to try and define it because people have different ideas, and to think about where my particular fat activism came from and to, and to trace the kind of genealogies of that. And, and yeah, it brought me back to these, these earlier fat feminists and the work that they did in LA and, uh, and in the Bay Area as well. Let's talk a little bit more about the Bay Area. You've written that uh, the leather dykes of San Francisco saved your life. They really did. They really did. So in 1994, I got the advance for Fat and Proud, which I think was like 300 quid or something. And I, you know, had no money. I was I was um, living on benefits, but uh, I spent it on a on a plane ticket to San Francisco, and um, God, so much was going on there at that time. Which was so a bunch of dykes were producing a zine called Fat Girl, which was extremely formative and was the first. I mean, Shadow Retire was very very important to me, but Fat Girl was the first iteration of some kind of media that I felt truly spoke to me and truly represented how I might see my fatness and, and what it could be. It was so exciting to read that stuff. And so I thought, I, ha I have to meet these people. And at the same time, I was starting to get online, and so we were emailing, and, and they were involved in tech in some ways as well. Um, so, yeah, I got on a plane and went there. But at the same time, there was a, um, a, a conference, maybe? Anyway, a gathering called Dirty Bird, which was... Uh, a queer core gathering. So there were lots of bands on at the time and there were workshops and there were lots of things going on. What is queer core? Uh, a, a mixture of uh, punk and queer. So this was happening at the same time. And so, yeah, I went to San Francisco and I had um, sex with women for the first time and I was um, doing SAM as well and meeting lots of leather dykes and also hanging out in this kind of queer punk um, sort of setting. And got tattooed and just was like, yeah, it was mind-blowing. It was a, a rite of passage, I think, yeah. You're talking about punk mm. and you first encountered that in the UK. Yeah. You know, as a 15-year-old. Yeah. And that seemed to be a major awakening for you. Yeah, it was. Showing you a different way of living. Yeah. I got a job go-go uh, dancing for Jane County, who's a, um, a trans woman, punk icon. And also met really, I mean, incredible people like Lee Black Childers, who um, uh, managed uh, Iggy and also uh, David Bowie for a period in the 70s, and also had uh, managed the Heartbreakers and was, mm. you know, pretty, um, was friends with um, Jackie Curtis as well, and was part of the Warhol scene too. So, I mean, it was just eye popping for me to be, I mean, extremely peripheral in these, in these things because I was so young. But, you know, just sort of hanging around and, and meeting these incredible people. And again, 
Leith's got a really wonderful oral history at the, which is um, deposited at the British Library. And if you ever have a couple of hours to spend, I would thoroughly recommend going there to the Sound Archive. This is before Stonewall. Yeah, it's in no, no, this oh, is no, a different sorry. one. There's okay. a different one. Um, but uh, but Lee, uh, yeah. So he was interviewed by Margot Farnham. I guess this would have been the early '80s, and he's talking about his life. And one of the things he said was that, you know, him he came from Kentucky, but him and his friends knew that there was something else out there and they leapt for it, they jumped for it. Hmm. And that has stayed with me ever since I heard that, really. Uh, and I think that's kind of my feeling, too, that there must be something better than this. There has to be... I mean, this, how I am at the moment, is not too bad, but at the time when I was when I was a teenager, you know, you know it was like Thatcherism, it was, it was the 80s, it was like, you know, wham. <laughs> 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 there must be something else, and it turned out that there was. So speaking of oral history, this seems to be pretty central to your most recent book. There were, I don't know how many interviews you conducted. I did. It was a bit complicated because some people were kind of interviewed twice, but about 28, 28 interviews, yeah. And how many of those were in the US? Oh my lord. Uh, Roughly. I don't know. Maybe half. But you were, you were, you were doing a lot of interviewing in San Francisco during yeah. a certain period. Yeah, but also in San Francisco in around 2010, but I also went to Northampton in Massachusetts and New York, and I did some interviews in Washington as well, and maybe elsewhere. But because I was doing the PhD, I had money, so they had a travel budget, yippee, which <laughs> nobody else took advantage of except for me. So uh, I could basically go where I wanted. So what was that experience like, traveling around and conducting all these interviews, compiling and collecting information? For this book, at the time, well, it was for the, dis for the dissertation. It was for the, yeah, for the, for the thesis. At the time, I think I was quite checked out, and I didn't really know what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted to talk to people about it, and it was only afterwards that I realised, oh, so this will be, you know, what the the work is based on. Um, the 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 kind of rationale behind it was this is an autoethnography, so I'm thinking about who I am and who I am in relation to things, and who the people are around me, and what we think that activism is, and what we do. So th that was the basis of it. But you, I don't know. Maybe you'll find this with all your interviews. You can only really know what it is in retrospect. When you're doing it, it's really hard. You just, oh, I don't know about you, and my process is just like, well, I'll have a go at this and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what happened. I just interviewed a lot of people. It's very hard to anticipate a structure. Um, what I've noticed, though, is that so much of the work you do is about up giving structure, giving form to a relatively amorphous cultural history. Thank you for articulating that, because I've never really been able to do that. But I think you're, you're spot on. Yes, that's what I do. And so I like an example of that is the queer and trans fat activist timeline mm. that you worked on. Mm. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. Uh, well, I was... I'm interested in how histories are made, and I think that comes from my oral history work, and also how people who sort of fall through the cracks, whose histories, you know, whose stories get told and whose don't, and especially around fat, this idea that there's nothing of value in fat, and fat culture, well, what a joke, that can't even exist, it's too ridiculous to think about, community as well, too bizarre to think about, but oh, lo and behold, these things exist, and particularly in pockets of queer and trans people as well. So I went to No Lose, which is a queer fat um, conference that happens every now and again in the States. And I thought, well, let's do a workshop here because I had an open call for workshops. It's always nice to do a workshop because you get to talk to people and everybody loves you and that's all very exciting. So I thought, OK, do a workshop. And so um, I stuck a long piece of paper on the wall and sort of marked it off year by year and invited people to sort of write down what they thought of as being historically important to remember. Um, and it was really beautiful. So there were some the younger people at one end, more, more recent stuff, more crowded, and the older people at the other end with more kind of sporadic um, memories and, you know, bits in between and people talking about each, you know, stuff and remembering and writing it down. And what happened from that was, so we had this object, which was a timeline, and um, I took that timeline around to places to, for people to talk about and discuss. And I also ended up lodging it at a, a, a wonderful archive in Hamburg called Build Vexel because I wanted this, you know, US, UK object to be in a place where English was not the first language and to think about what it is to be in different spaces. 
and at that time I had an artist residency in um, in Hamburg and so I made a zine uh, out of the timeline which I also uh, made into a download that people could could look at uh, made a paper version of it which I gave to all the contributors um, I don't know it, it kind of turned into other things and I've since done timelines in other spaces as well and probably will continue to do that it kind of it, it gives a sense of like permanence and establishment yeah. and authority to yeah. um, what I guess has been a kind of marginal identity. It's about validating people's experiences that they don't think of as being particularly significant. And when people come together to do that, you start to see patterns emerging and you start to see when things became important or when things were started to talk, be, when people start to talk about things or think about things in a particular way. Um, it's, yeah really exciting and beautiful to do that and also it's participatory as well anybody can have a go and you know you make this beautiful object as well that can then be something that people hold and, and hopefully treasure can we talk a little more about before stonewall mm. and that experience yeah it's also a wonderful um piece of work so miraculously i don't know how i got the job but i got a job as an oral history worker and uh, my job was to go and record video um, oral histories with uh, older uh, LGBT people in London in the southwest. So London, Brighton, it was mostly. And there were I had other there were other workers on the team who were doing other parts of the country. I then ended up recording about fifty of them, fifty interviews with people, um, just talking about their lives really and what life was like uh, before Wolfenden. Um, before uh, decriminalisation of um, male homosexuality in 1960, 1967 in the UK, but we also interviewed um, women and uh, and trans people too. Uh, so yeah, it's just uh, uh, it's a long time ago now. So that was 2003, oh, okay. but it was also a really important um, piece of work in terms of thinking of myself as being part of a genealogy of um, of queer identity and queer culture and community and I think that has certainly influenced other things like the the timeline project and and, and my work in in factorism book and what happens with that work what happens with that material what do you what did you anticipate happening with it well I knew that it was going to be lodged in archives and I hope that people would return to it and use it and look at it whether that's happened or not I don't know but it is being looked after by the British Library and uh, and there's now that the name has changed, but the original archive that was lodged with in, in Brighton, you know, they still have those holdings. I guess it's it feels a bit like banking material for the future. I know that in the future, you know, it will become more extraordinary. The, the stories will become more extraordinary as time goes on. And what I notice a lot, I work with, with young people quite a lot, and what I notice is there's this real lack of knowledge about what came before, and maybe it's part of being young. You know, you think you've invented everything. And, um, and I'm very concerned about those gaps between younger people and older people because I think, well, it's just great to be able to locate yourself and, mm -hmm. to, and to know where you came from. You seem to be so like firmly in that gap. Like you're, you're kind of in the middle of two different generations. Yes. Um, I mean, you've, you've mentioned, I think, in a previous interview that you have extensive journals from the time that you're a teenager up until... Well, now. Up until now. Yeah. And that uh, for you, this is a much grander kind of archival project. Um, and I guess there's something incredibly audacious about that. Well, it does fit on grand. It's funny. Well, it's quite grandiose, isn't it? Mm. Here I am. I sit in Stratford in my front room talking to you. But also I've got this whole uh, backlog of material that for the most part has been ignored by the culture in general, but that I feel is important. And I think that archive is a sp archives in general are a space where the uncelebrated can be can be celebrated. Not that I'm, I'm not sort of uh, saying that nobody ever celebrates me, poor me, wah wah. That that's not true. But you know, my work is very it's marginal and it's and it's small in in so many ways too. Um, uh, so it's a way of yeah, reminding myself that what I do has value uh, when mostly I feel that, you know, I'm not part of big institutions, I'm, I'm not massively celebrated in, in many ways, and kind of making something that other people can also find 
find useful and find encouraging. It's an encouraging project, I think. That's mm. what I think of it as. Something to encourage people to do their own things. And very much a kind of punk and DIY ethic that if, that if you don't have stuff, um, you, can still, you can still make stuff. Can I ask one more question? Yeah, of course you can. <laughs> so uh, this is about psychotherapy. Mm. Um, you said that not all therapists think of their work as a kind of social change, but I do. In fact, I think it has the potential to be revolutionary. Yes, I do think that. Well, how is your, your practice revolutionary? Or what, where is that potential? The therapy that I do, and maybe therapy in general, enables people to think about their lives in ways they hadn't really considered before. And so it's about illuminating the sort of dusty corners that they may have forgotten or overlooked and showing them that there's, there may be value in those places that they can draw on. The people that I work with tend to be really marginalised or stigmatised in various ways. You know, we are, we are in society and so we're bound by, you know, the, the, the tensions and rules of society, but there's still a lot of space for agency and, and choice within, within those strictures. And, um, and I see my work as being really political in, in enabling people to, to value themselves and to, to, be, to be in the driving seat of their own lives, to be able to, to act and do and, and connect with others and make good lives for themselves as far as they can. Charlotte, thank you so much. A pleasure, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, it's Matthew again back in 2019. Thanks for listening to that episode. Like I said, one of my favorites. Thanks to Charlotte Cooper, and thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. I'll be back again in September with new episodes, as well as some exciting news. So stay tuned. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.